0: Hey. Come, Holy Spirit, and calm our hearts and our minds to receive from you what you would have for us as we look at this challenging passage of what it means to be salty people in a bland world. Lord God, that you would pour out your spirit upon us and that we would think your thoughts, that my words would be yours, that you would bend our wills to your own. you would take our hearts and set them on fire with love for you and for your son, Jesus Christ. For it's in his name we pray. Amen. In 1845, during Queen Victoria's reign, Sir John Franklin and 138 officers set out from Southampton embarking to find the Northwest Passage across the Arctic ice to the Pacific Ocean. They sailed in two, three-masted ships. Each vessel carried an auxiliary steam engine with a 12-day supply of coal for the entire projected three years' voyage. Let me repeat that. Okay? They carried a 12-day supply of coal for what they figured was a three-year voyage instead of additional coal each ship made room for a 1200 volume set of books a hand organ which played 50 tunes china place settings for the officers and the men cut glass wine goblets and sterling silver flatware The officer's flatware was particularly interesting. Every single officer had his own silverware with his initials and his family crest on the handle. Quite helpful for navigating the Arctic Circle, don't you think? Well, they set off with great fanfare. It was just enormous celebration as they took off. Two months later, a British whaling captain saw the two ships in Lancaster Sound and reported back to England that the captain and crew were in high spirits. He was the last person who ever saw them alive. Years later, the Inuit, whom we know as the Eskimos variously all across the arctic ice discovered remnants of the franklin crew one eskimo group found one sailor pulling a boat across the ice others found in a place called starvation cove not the kind of place you go to spring break i think uh, found the remains of 35 men who had been dragging the boat At Terror Bay, they found a tent on the ice with 30 bodies. And at Simpson Strait in the Arctic ice, they found one of the ships with only the masts poking through the ice. So for 20 years, search parties recovered skeletons all over the frozen areas. Among the bodies were place settings of fine sterling silver with officer's initials and the family crest on the handle. There was a frozen officer, the skeleton, in uniform, trousers and jacket of fine blue cloth, edged with a silk braid with sleeves slashed, bearing five covered buttons each. Over this uniform, the dead man had worn a blue greatcoat, with a black silk neckerchief. Such was the Franklin Expedition. Sir Franklin, John Franklin, and the 138 men perished because they underestimated the requirements of the Arctic exploration. They ignorantly imagined a carnival cruise amid the comforts of their English officers' quarters They exchanged necessities for luxuries and to their ignorance that led to their deaths. This is exactly what Jesus is setting out for his hearers in Luke chapter 14 as he was determined at this juncture in Luke 14 to go for his people and die for them upon the cross. It's just been a fascinating journey, hasn't it? As we've heard since chapter 951, he set his eyes toward Jerusalem, 1333. Nevertheless, I must go on my way today and tomorrow and the day following, for it cannot be that a prophet should perish away from Jerusalem, he said. A rough voyage lay ahead for Jesus and his followers. And at this place in Luke's gospel, multitudes were constantly around Jesus Because of his great preaching and his great power. Gathering a crowd is not the same thing as gathering disciples. For Jesus is after disciples, not crowds. Gathering a crowd is not the same as gathering the church. You can gather a crowd in a variety of ways. You gather the church by evangelism and discipleship. So in today's language, much of this crowd is what we would call groupies. Not unlike many of the fans right now down at the Muni, Pot, uh, Muni municipal parking lot getting ready for the 1 o'clock kickoff. Lots of Brownie fans now. Where were they two years ago when they were 0 and 16, right? So Jesus gives this crowd a reality check and laid out in unforgettable terms The cost of being a disciple. So I invite you to open up with me in your Bibles to Luke chapter 14. Because what we're going to see is Jesus did for his followers what Sir John Franklin failed to do for his. What he did is lay out the cost of discipleship. And that discipleship would cost the follower dearly. And yet, the benefit following Jesus would make it all the worthwhile To follow Jesus, to be a disciple, to be a Christian. Number one, there'll be a relational cost. Two, there'll be a personal cost. And three, there's a call for a personal accounting. you got to go to the spiritual CPA. Relational cost, a personal cost, and a call to truly count the cost. Let's look at this. First, the relational cost. Jesus starts off and says, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, and yes, even his own life, cannot be my disciple. All right, we should, we, should, we should be used to this by now, right? Okay? He's using metaphor, ladies and gentlemen. Go back to high school English class. Metaphor, all right? It's a figure of speech in which a word or a phrase is used to an object or an action to which is not literally applicable. Jesus is not stating that you should have an unqualified hatred for your parents when the biblical command is to honor your father and mother. Okay? Same thing for spouses. Jesus would not and cannot say, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, and then go hate your wife. What Jesus is saying is paradoxically that our love for him must be so great and so pervasive our natural love of self and family pales in comparison. We're to subordinate everything, even our own being, to our love for our Lord Jesus Christ. He's our first loyalty. All other relationships take second place. Being a Christian to be a disciple will call you to reprioritize your lives in completely contrary ways to the world system. People don't live like us, my friends, across the West Shore and our neighbors where we live, work, and play will think you're crazy. So with a harsh directness, Jesus yanks us from our dream world. (laughs) Are you a Christian? Are you a disciple? And you must love Jesus so much that your love for your family seems like hatred in comparison. Otherwise, he says, don't pretend that you're following me. These are astonishing words. (laughs) Um, This is where so many fall short. In our secular culture of today, our family as the center of our lives, our Christian ethic is proper. But some of us love our wives, our husbands, our children more than we love God. We miss the mark when we put their development athletically, intellectually, culturally, artistically, socially before their spiritual well-being. We fall short and we spend more time shelling them around to various practices, games, and lessons, much more than we spend in time prayer for their souls. By comparison, our lives reveal, if we're living our lives that way, that we hate God. And that we really aren't Jesus' disciples. And the gospel-centered paradox is that the proper way to love our children is is to love Jesus so so we can have a greater love for him and enable us to love them with a greater love. Genuine disciples are the best lovers of God and therefore the best lovers of, of wives and husbands and the best lovers of children and grandchildren. Disciples must always be ready to hate, to give second place to everything and everyone else. There's a relational cost in following Jesus Christ in your relationships. Many of you know this. And it may seem harsh at first, but in right perspective and priority, this focus of our lives makes our lives richer and fuller. I stated this story a month ago, but given that we have turnover every week, I think it's worth bearing again. I first came to faith in Jesus Christ at George Mason. I was in college. I had spent five years just getting closer and closer to the reality, and one day it just dropped, and I said, I surrender. And so, I, you know, I, the rector said, bring your Bible to church. I brought my Bible to church. The rector said, why don't you join college and career? I said, okay, I'll do that. So me and Kim both started being more active. We got involved in ministry. You heard me talk about all that, right? And all along the way, I never said a word to my parents. I just said, I'm going I'm going to church. Because I was living at home. I was a commuter student at George Mason. My brother was living there too. Without me knowing, they were starting to stew. I never tried to share the gospel with them, although I knew I should. I was praying about how I would do that. Because they were good Episcopalians. And then uh, one day, on a Sunday afternoon there came this, you know, cold cock attack from out of the blue. Sitting there eating lunch on Sunday afternoon, and they just started to say, you think you're better than we are? We raised you as a Christian. Why are you taking this so seriously? Bringing your Bible to church. You, you You think you're better than we are, don't you? You're starting to memorize scripture and and say scriptures and talk to us about what you're learning and things. You, you know, we raised you this way. Why, why are you being so bizarre? Well, if you know me at all, you start something, we're going to finish it. And so it was heated. I didn't act always godly in this conversation. But I looked at them and I said, when have I ever said anything judgmental to you? They couldn't say anything. I've invited you to come with me. Is that so offensive to you? And then my mom said, you can't go tonight. That's my car. I own it. And I said, I'm going. And if you stop me, that's fine. I'm going to go down to the recruiters and drop out of school tomorrow, and I'm joining the Army because you will pay for my college education or the United States Army will pay for my college education. You make up your choice because I'm going to follow Christ. It was not fun. They let me have, they all had the last word, believe me. You know, that was the best I got, that whole conversation. Praise God if you didn't endure that with your parents. I'm glad for you, but many of you did. You know what I'm talking about. In families. But somewhere in our relationships, our idols will come out. And if we're not willing to push through it and stand on the rock of Christ Jesus, my friends, we will suffer. They won't. So I want to encourage you. Count the relational cost because there is one. Secondly, there's a personal cost. Jesus doesn't stop there. Verse 27 Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. You know, we use the word cross all the time. May I remind you, it was an instrument of execution. What Jesus is saying here is you might as well hoist up the gallows, (laughs) hoist up the electric chair. Sit in that chair. Die to yourself. Because if you're not willing to do that, you're not mine. See, discipleship and following Jesus is a series of deaths, right? It's perpetual dying, and disciples know following Jesus on the path of discipleship is one of self-denial. Disciples embrace suffering as a part of life. Paul said it this way, I have suffered the loss of all things that I may know him and in, in the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Philippians 3, 8-11. There was no golden age of being a Christian. When I arrived here 12 years ago, I had some of our older prisoners. It was so good in the 50s. Oh, wasn't it so great going to church with a bunch of non-believers who came out of no conviction? The churches were full. So what? It wasn't good. It was a fake. And plus, the black people weren't welcome. It, wasn't, it was good for you. It wasn't good for them. <laughs> good old days. It's always been hard to be a Christian. Always. Read church history. Early church, medieval church, reformational church. Let's go back to the days of Reformation. No, I like not being burned at the stake. It wasn't a golden era, all right? It was hard for true believers in England. That's why many of them left, because they went to Calvin's Geneva, because it was safer in Geneva, Switzerland. Fox's Book of Martyrs, does that mean anything to you? (sighs) My friends... It's always been hard. Lewis says it this way. Give me all. I don't want so much of your time and so much of your money and so much of your work as I want you, God says. I have, no, I have not come to torment your natural self, but to kill it. No half measures are any good. I don't want to cut off a branch here and a branch there. I want to have the whole tree. I don't want to drill the tooth or crown it or stop it. I want to have it out Hand over the whole natural self, all the desires which you think are innocent, as well as the ones you think are wicked, the whole outfit. Being a follower of Jesus, to be a Christian, to be a disciple requires everything. There are no exceptions. No one has ever become a disciple of Christ and lived a life of pure ease. You can search the writings of the early church, the medieval church, the reformational church, and you will find that's the case. You can check every century of Christian history. Even the past 150 years, true disciples find life difficult. Discipleship calls for sacrifice. But as we walk in the reality of the cross of Jesus Christ, my friends, this challenge of counting the relational cost and the personal cost, something begins beautiful because we become a new man, a new woman, in Jesus Christ. And we're going to see here in a second that such a new man and new woman becomes salty. The Christian who brings flavor to life. And everyone benefits most of all the hated family. (laughs) So that's the first thing. There's a personal cost. There's a relational cost. And finally, there's a call for a personal accounting. While the other is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. These these little parables that Jesus is saying here are essentially the same point with different emphases, right? The, The builder of the tower was free to build or not. The king was being invaded, and he had to make a quick choice. But both parables emphasize the necessity of careful calculation and evaluation. Am I really in for this? Am I really in for this? To think it all out. You know, virtually every accomplishment in life has a cost accounting, right? I mean, if you're going to be a CPA, you've got to go through years and years of studying exams. You're going to be a lawyer. You've got to go through years and years of schooling. You're going to be a doctor, years and years of schooling. You're going to be a, perf- a football player. You've got to lift pounds and pounds of weights enough. At the end of your career, you've lifted enough to equal the terminal tower. It is said that Leonardo da Vinci, in order to learn to draw the hand, drew a 1,000 hand drawings. Hours on the piano for concert pianists. My friends, Jesus says every would-be disciple must count the cost before they enter discipleship. And what's the cost? Everything. Every part of our lives. Verse 33, therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has Has cannot be my disciple. He's talking about our possessions. He's talking about our relationships. He's talking about my life. I love Eugene Peterson's translation of this and the message. He says, simply put, if you're not willing to take what is dearest to you, whether plans or people, and kiss it goodbye, you can't be my disciple. When money or things... We buy, make us hesitant about doing what we feel the Lord is calling us to do. We're the disciples of things and not of Christ. And so, would be disciples need to think about that, count the cost, and then say, Lord, all I have is yours, including my bank account, my possessions. As well as my relationships. Because the first test of discipleship is our possessions and our money, right? Regardless of our income, if we're not giving regularly and generously, we're not living as Christ's disciples. We can't follow the Lord if he does not have our hearts. And Jesus said, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Does he have your treasure? Then he has your heart. Now, with all this cost and suffering and everything, is such a life boring, black and white? Not at all. Such a life overflows with zeal and love of life. And Jesus Jesus calls it a salty life. Look at verse 34. Salt is good. But if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It's of no use. Can't throw it away in the soil. Can't even throw it on the manure pile. It doesn't help anything. So therefore, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. In other words, listen up. When you count the cost of of relational discipleship, when you count the cost of personal discipleship, and you really count the cost that it's going to cost you everything and who you are, you become salty to this bland world. And you go on a successful expedition. It's not going to feel that way all the time. You might have to go across the ice. Just get prepared. And leave the sterling silver behind. All right? Salt, sodium chloride, is a stable compound, all you chemists out there, right? Technically, it cannot lose its saltiness. But it can be diluted when mixed with impurities. And that's our problem, isn't it? We allow the world to come into our lives and make us less salty than Jesus desires us to be. And so coming after all of this, commitment to Jesus can deteriorate if we're not careful. If the saltiness is lost, the disciple is useless and fit for nothing. And he warns us against that. But the disciple who's dramatically and dynamically committed in love to Jesus Christ and loves his family because of what he has done for us on the cross. It's a gift. Why wouldn't I live this way? He be- becomes a person who seasons the life of family and friends with the good news of the gospel. And his life brims with vitality. Lloyd Ogilvie, the pastor, said, Saline saints bring zest and gusto to life. Like salt, they bring the best of the flavor of living. In the following decade, no less than 30 ships went out looking for the Franklin. All with increasingly careful calculation. They brought their coats this time. Um, of what it would take to succeed. Ultimately, on on a more positive note, because the Franklin was such a disaster, they mapped the Arctic, they found the Northwest Passage, and developed new technology, ice cutters, to conquer the Arctic ice. We can have victory in this Christian life, ladies and gentlemen, if we count the relational cost, count the personal cost, and recognize Jesus wants it all. So the questions that I leave you with this morning is, number one, am I willing to hate all of the relationships to receive the love of God in Jesus Christ? Two, am I willing to die to my own desires and plans to live by God's will for me? And three, Am I willing to surrender all my possessions to receive God's kingdom? Are you holding anything back? Let it go. Let's die together. Because the cost of discipleship will produce a salty people. We have to be willing to count the cost and pay the price. Because this is the abundant life he calls each and every one of us to because of what he's done for us. I want to remind everybody of our our mantra. There's no perfect people here. Don't go there with me. All right? Our future in Christ is incredibly bright. Anyone can get in on this. I'm so glad you're here. Let's be salty. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for a challenging word. No matter where that we haven't counted the cost, Lord, in our relationships, in our walk with you, recognizing that it's going to cost us to follow you, and we're going to have to change. Lord, I pray that you would pour out your spirit upon each and every one of us to die to ourselves and live for you. And not be a groupie, but a disciple. And Lord, that each and every one of us, in knowing you and following you, would salt this bland world with great flavor. And we would see a mighty movement across, not only within our church, but across the West Shore because of the faithfulness of us, us, your people. For in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.